Good morning. Hey, everyone. Hey, Dave, my mic works. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, hey, good to see everyone. Welcome. Feel free to come on in. I'm not offended uh, by people moving around or getting up and leaving while I'm talking. I figure it's not about me, it's about you. So, my name's Garrett. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Really good and excited to be back here with you guys. Uh, some of you might know I was up here. Gosh, oh, really? That's really funny. Oh, I can't tell. Am I talking? Am I on the mic- speakers? Okay. See, you think that the one up here is in charge, like whoever person you see up here on Sunday is in charge? It's not. It's those people back there in the sound booth. They have all the control. They also hate attention being drawn to them, so they're like, Garrett, I'm going to kill you after service. Uh, Where was I? I don't know. Oh, oh, I was was here. I spoke a couple months ago. Um, If you were here, you heard me talk about how I have this tendency to pass out while doing public speaking, and you did that. You laughed, and that hurt my feelings, but I didn't pass out, and uh, I don't, like, an athlete that has the best season of their career wins a championship and then overstays their welcome and comes back and has a really crummy year the next year, you know? You're like, shoot, he should have gone out while he was on top. I felt like, hey, I felt pretty good about that message. I thought it went good, and uh, I'm going to stop while I'm ahead. So I was scheduled to speak a couple weeks ago, but I staged this whole kidney stone thing. <laughs> it was like, I'm not going back up. I'm, I'm quitting while I'm ahead. So, no, so I'm here. I, um, my notes are giving me trouble. That's why I'm looking down here right now. Um, I'm feeling good. I'm not going to pass out. I'm not going to pass a stone. Who knows what will happen? We'll all get to partake in it together. So we're wrapping up this series uh, called Felt Needs that we've been in for the last few weeks. And uh, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs shows that the base of this pyramid, there are these basic needs that we all have. Food, water, oxygen, right? These are things that are essential to live. And as you go up his pyramid, it goes into more psychological, as we're saying, intrinsic needs, these felt needs we have to be known, to have a sense of belonging, to succeed or feel significant. And today, we're ending with this felt need to be free. We have a need to feel free. So what is freedom? For today's purposes, we're not talking about national independence, right? We all know that we live in a free country. Anyone that has braved the waters of elementary school knows this. It's a free country. It's a free country, right? <laughs> like kids kicking your chair and you turn around like, dude, stop kicking my chair. I can do whatever I want. It's a free country, right? Like elementary. It's great. We know we live in a free country. So what do I mean when I say freedom? Freedom from carrying around the heaviness and the pressures Freedom from sin. Freedom from the internal pressures that we put on ourselves to be the ideal version of us. Webster's Dictionary defines freedom as this. The liberation from slavery or the restraint from the power of another. Liberation from slavery or the uh, restraint from being under the power of another. Of another. What we're talking about today is what it means to be spiritually free, okay? So as a pastor, I've had the privilege of meeting with a lot of people and a lot of different types of people over the years. And one thing that I have found, kind of a common thread as I've met with all these different people, some are 
there because they think I actually can provide some value to them. Others are just a result of being in a community like this and you meet people and you build relationships, right? You have conversations. But as we've gone through this, I've found kind of a common thread, a theme, if you will, to our human experience. And that is that many of us feel stuck. We don't feel free. In some larger, small aspect of our life, we feel stuck. For me, personally, it's been more around this sense, this feeling of inadequacy, never quite feeling like I'm good enough, and that feeling has led me down a deep, dark path to long bouts of depression. Other people are like, dude, I don't relate to that at all. Maybe my thing's more pride in wrestling through that, or fear, or anger, and I'm not going to spend time going through the list of hundreds of different options that we have, but hopefully as you're sitting here, you can just think inside yourself, what are some ways that I don't truly feel free, that I feel stuck, that there's a difference between this person I want to be and who I am, how I feel, how I want to feel, and how I end up feeling. Some of us are really aware of our freedom or lack thereof. And some of us aren't. So as you're sitting here and you're like, I'm not quite sure what it is. Chances are someone very close to you, someone that you're very close to, not necessarily just the people next to you, but that you're relationally close to, would really resonate with this. When I, uh, growing up, growing up, I was a pretty happy-go-lucky kid. I liked to have fun. I was lighthearted. Just liked to have a good time. And then I went to college. College is also fun, by the way, but my junior year, I met this group of girls. I'm going to be up front. My wife's back there. We talked about this already. Hi, babe. Uh, They're really good looking girls. And so I tried to figure out, you know, I'm conspiring in my mind. How do I get around these girls? I found out that this group got together every Tuesday night for dinner at one of the girls' apartments. So just somehow, by chance, over and over and over again, I ended up at their doorstep uh, around 7 o'clock on Tuesday nights. <laughs> I'm like, good-looking girls and free food, done. I'm there. So I'd knock on the door, and they'd open. Hey, what are you guys up to? I was just in the neighborhood. Thought I'd pop by and say hi. You know, it was the same thing every time. Hey, Garrett, come on in. We're just, we're actually cooking food. You want to sit with No, I can't. Okay, sure, yeah, I'll cook and walk on in. And so the same thing happened for weeks on end. We'd have dinner and then sit down and have these super deep, elaborate conversations. These girls actually had a name for themselves in this time they spent together. They called themselves the Savage Society, which was scary, but they were good looking, so I just let it go. (laughs) The Savages, I don't know where they got that. And they would dissect everything under the sun, deconstruct all these ideas from religion to politics, culture, our university, the professors, our friends. I mean, you name it, and we talked about it. And what's interesting, and I'm by no means putting this on them, just to be clear, this was my own thing. Through these times, I started to think different. And I actually started to question so much of what I thought I knew before. Here I am with these really smart, intelligent women which led to developing a whole new group of friends, and I won't elaborate on that, but this group of friends I developed just thought very different than I had ever thought before. And so I began to think, well, that must be how smart people think. They think very critically, and they deconstruct. 
and I must be a bit of a fool. I need to catch up. You know, this happy-go-lucky guy over here is kind of an idiot. Like, I got to grow up and become an adult, you know? Like, this is what you do when you become an adult. But it wasn't my native self. I was trying to cram something into me that wasn't really me. And it led to what I said earlier, a lot of feelings of inadequacy. And it led to depression. And after college, my dad's back there too. I'm looking at him. Like any good 23-year-old young man does, he moves into his dad's basement. Right, Dad? (laughs) Some of you guys are like, yeah, my kids are doing that right now too. And uh, I had a hard time coming out of college, figuring out what I was going to do. And and my parents got concerned. And um, they ended up encouraging me to go see some counselors. And so I did that. Saw a few different counselors. There's this one guy that I met with and kind of clicked with. And I'll never forget the third time we met. He says to me, Garrett, do you really want to get better? And I was kind of offended. I'm like, you kidding me? First of all, I'm paying you. Well, my parents are paying you. <laughs> it's, it's church, I have to tell the truth. So much money, right? I'm paying you so much money. What a stupid question. But second of all, yes, I want to get better. And he said, that's what everybody says. I've asked hundreds of people that question. They all say that. Very few of them are actually willing to do the hard work it takes to get better. So I'm going to ask you again. Do you really want to be free? Challenge accepted. Game on. Yeah, you put that in front of me. I know how to do the hard work. I did the hard work all growing up. I worked hard at school. I worked hard at sports. I went to church. I was a pretty good kid. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but I was a pretty good kid. I made most of the right decisions. I know how to do this. Do better. Work harder. That was my thing. And so for the better part of 10 years, that's what I did. Just worked my little butt off. Went to church. I read books on self-help. Read my Bible every day. I prayed every day. Went and saw my pastor and got counseling. I started volunteering. I went to a small group, right? All the things you're supposed to do, all the things we're told at church to do. And let me be really clear. Those are all really good things. Those are all right things. So I'm not discrediting all of that. But I was looking to those things to get me unstuck, to fix me, to solve my problem. And I bet there's a lot of you out there that are doing the same thing, working real hard. Working real hard, trying to do all the right stuff. You've got similar advice that I got from a counselor or a pastor or a mentor or a friend or a family member. And you're working real hard to do all of those things. But ultimately, inside of ourselves, we still don't feel free. We feel stuck between who we are and who we want to be. Between how we feel and how we want to feel. Between who we are and who we want to be. There's this guy in the Bible. Many of you have heard of him. His name's Paul. He's kind of a big deal. He wrote over half of the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. Super affluent guy. Smart, successful. Turns out he can relate to this feeling. So if you have your Bible, you can pull it out, turn to Romans chapter 7 if you've got an app on your phone. Otherwise, the scripture will be up here on the screen. I want to read this to you. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 18. Here we go. And I know that nothing, this is Paul, again, this is Paul talking. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. 
I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I end up doing it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what's wrong. He's saying this is just a principle of life. When I want to do right, I end up doing wrong. Then listen to this. I love God's law with all of my heart, but there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? The Apostle Paul, one of the most affluent, successful, smartest guys of his time, says that he relates to this very same feeling of not doing what he wants to do, not being who he wants to be. I guess it's comforting in kind of a weird, perverse sort of way, right? The saying goes, misery loves company. So we can kind of go, well, at least Paul, you know, he's kind of a big deal. He feels this way. That makes me feel a little better. But we're stuck. We're stuck. How do we get unstuck? Lucky for us, Paul asked this very same question and then in the next verse immediately provides the answer. So jump back into verse 24, seven, chapter 7, verse 24 with me again. Paul says, oh, what a miserable person I am. And here's the question. Who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? And then he provides the answer in verse 25. Thank God. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Freedom is found in Jesus. I thought there's going to be a lot more like charismatic response there. This is good news, right? Freedom is found in Jesus, but it gets even better. It's like Paul's writing an infomercial where it's like, but wait, there's more, right? Turn to chapter 8, starting with verse 1. So now there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has what? Come on, has what? set you free, has freed you. The power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the body we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law, you got to hear this, this is huge, so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. A few things I want to take note of in this passage of Scripture. Three main themes that I find here. The first one we already said, freedom is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. If you're taking notes, a couple other verses that I think you should write down, they're not going to be up on the screen, but the first one is Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It says, so Christ has truly set us free. Galatians 5, 1. 
Jesus has truly set us free. The next one, John 8, 36. So if the Son, Jesus, has set you free, then you are truly free. It's so important that he has to repeat himself. If the Son set you free, then you're free. You're free. You're truly free. The second thing I notice is only a free person can set you free. If you're in jail and you got other people in your jail cell with you, they can't set you free. It takes someone outside with a key to come in and unlock your jail cell door and to pull it open for you to experience freedom. Only a free person can set someone free. And the third thing is this. Freedom isn't free. It comes at a high price. As Americans, we know this, right? We studied any sort of American history. We know this. I feel like I'm obligated in a freedom talk to quote Braveheart, right? Be remiss. I mean, it's like Jake has a sword in his office. I won't get, go get that, though. It's actually from Lord of the Rings, though. Don't let him fool you. <laughs> so if you've seen Braveheart, you know the story of William Wallace, Scottish, Scottish revolutionary that was fighting the tyranny of the English. Many battles, thousands of men f- followed him, conquered all sorts of English armies. But the real battle, like the biggest battle that was won when freedom really occurred was when they captured him, they tried him, they sentenced him to death, and he's on that table being tortured in the place that he would ultimately die. And in his last breath, they tell him, do you have anything you want to say? And we know how it goes. He shouts out in his dying breath, freedom. And not only did that ignite the Scottish people behind him, but the king of England, who also was on his deathbed, heard that, and it sent shivers through his spine because he realized in that moment the freedom he was trying to Squash by killing this man, he actually just set on wildfire. That killing this man is what would really start a revolution and set the Scots free. Freedom isn't free, it comes at a super high price. But here's the best news Paul says in verse 4 that steep price has already been paid, that it's been fully satisfied. Jesus, when he was pinned to that cross, the last Thing he said, the last words out of his mouth is, it is finished. And then he yielded his spirit. Once you're free, you're truly free. You don't have to stay stuck. You don't have to be a slave. God loves you so much that you are set free. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And I wish I could stop here because this is the story. And yet so many of us here today have heard this story, believed this story, accepted this story. But we don't feel it. We still don't feel free. I feel stuck. So what's the disconnect? How could I believe that story and yet still not feel free? You know what I think it is? I think we've been lied to. I think we've been lied to for a long, long time. We've been conditioned to feel trapped that even though we hear this amazing story about Jesus and believe it, that we're still stuck. 
I have this dog. His name is Summit. I think there's a picture up there. If it's up there, he's the black dog in the picture. I don't know what kind of dog he is. We bought him from a, uh, a, sh- a shelter, like an adoption place. Did I say bought? I don't know. Anyway, we adopted him from one of those shelters. <laughs> eh, anyway. Um, it's a weird dog. I don't know what kind of dog he is. They told us it was a lab border collie mix, but my wife and I have always thought that he's more of a, we truly wonder if he's a wolf. It's just a, he's a different kind of dog. When someone has let off his leash or if we open the door and don't know he's right behind us, he bolts. He's just gone like a flash of lightning. That dog goes so fast. Put it. And then the whole family's out in the neighborhood yelling, Summit, Summit, you know, whistling, making this big ordeal. Everyone's looking out their blinds. Oh, there's the Berkeley again. You know, they can't keep their dog inside. But if you could experience this with us, if you could see Summit running around the neighborhood, he's not running away from us in an act of defiance. It's truly on his face. He has been liberated, emancipated. His head's held high, his tail's wagging, tongue's hanging out of his mouth, and he literally prances. It's like he's got tippy toes, and he just kind of prances. And I sit there, and it's so frustrating, but at the same time, you have to ask yourself, why don't I feel like that? Like, I've been set free. Why don't I feel, why don't I, you know, maybe I, not the tongue out of my mouth and the prancing part, but <laughs> why don't I have that enthusiasm in me? Why don't I feel free? And I think it's because since the day we were born, we were conditioned to believe a lie. Here at Arbor, we believe in the Bible. Okay, unapologetic about it. We believe in it, not just bits and pieces. We believe in the whole thing. Believe that this is a way that God has revealed himself to us, teaches us about himself. It also tells us that there's an anti-God, that there's an adversary. His name is the devil, Lucifer, Satan. And we believe he's real. The Bible teaches us that his sole desire is to kill to steal and dis- destroy, truly, the anti-God. We, don't, we believe he's real, not just a concept, not just a cartoon, not just some funny thing with horns and a pitchfork, but truly the adversary of our soul. In the book of John, in the New Testament, fourth book in the New Testament, teaches us that the devil is a liar. It says that he's the father of lies, that no truth is in him at all. It's his character, it's who he is. And just like, if you know the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, just like he whispered in their ear from the very beginning, did God really say that? Did God really say don't eat the fruit? Began to make you question. He's been whispering the same lies into our ears, into our churches, into our culture from the beginning of time. From the day we were born, we're conditioned to believe that we can't trust. We're being lied to. Have you ever heard how elephants are tamed by circus trainers? From a young age, since when they're babies, they take a big rope and they tie it around their leg. I got this big thing in front of me. They tie it around their their leg and then they put it into an immovable object, some giant pole in the ground or something like that. Just like a dog on a leash, as, as the elephant starts to walk and the slack on the rope is caught up, they're pulled back. And they're really, they realize they can't move and they struggle and they strain and they twist and they turn and try and overcome it. But they can't. 
because they're tied down. Next time they're put on the rope, they try the same thing. And they do it over and over and over and over again until at some point in their life, they go, I'm stuck. I got this rope around me. I can't go anywhere. And that's why if you go to a circus and you look behind the tent where all the animals are kept, you can see giant, full-grown, multi-ton elephants with a rope or a chain on their ankle that's simply tied to this little stake in the ground. They have everything they need, the size, the strength, the power to rip that stake right out of the ground, go running through the parking lot, and do whatever the heck they want to do. But they don't. Why? Because they've been conditioned to believe that the second that rope is on their leg, they're stuck. Even though they're not anymore. They don't have to be. What about a biblical example? Maybe you've heard about the Israelites, God's chosen people, who were enslaved by the Egyptians, taken from their homeland, put into slavery and bondage, work in the desert under the hot heat of the Egyptian sun, whipped, beaten, tortured their entire lives to do whatever the Egyptians wanted them to do for hundreds of years. This isn't just our lifetime. This is many generations crying, begging to God, save us, save us. We thought we were your people. And finally, God hears their cry. He sees their tears. He answers their prayer. And in a miraculous way, saves the Israelites from the Egyptians. Maybe you've heard some of the story, the most famous part of which is the parting of the Red Sea as the Israelites are being chased by the Egyptians. They're hot on their tail. God parts this ocean, this sea, so that the Egyptians can cross on dry land. And as soon as they're on the other side, the waters come back together, swallowing up a bunch of Egyptians. The rest of them left on the other shore. And now the Israelites look back and like, all right, we got some breathing room. We're free from them. But as the story goes on, time after time, God shows them his favor and his power, brings victory after victory after victory to these people, feeds them. Food from heaven just shows up. They never have a need. And yet, here's what we find the Israelites saying at one point during this story. They're out wandering in the desert. They're wondering when they're going to get to this place God promised them. And they say this. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There at least we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you've brought us into this wilderness to starve to death. Can you believe that? They forgot what God had promised them. So much so that they're saying, we would rather go back into slavery and be beat and work our butts off by the sweat of our brow than be free. Sometimes like the elephant, we don't really know. We don't realize that we're free. We've been so conditioned to believe that we're not that it's hard to accept and believe that we are. Or like the Israelites, sometimes the unknown is so scary, so daunting, so unfamiliar that we go back to the very thing we have been begging God to deliver us from. Save me. But it's familiar somehow. We feel it's safe. And so we go back because we're conditioned to do this from the beginning. And all along, Jesus is sitting there, standing there. His arms reached out. And he's saying, I can help you. I can help you. I did help you. 
You don't have to live this way. You don't have to work so hard. It's finished. It's fully satisfied. But our tendency is to keep returning to the familiar. We want to be free. We want out. But our past keeps calling us back. And so what do we do? We work our butts off. Do better. Try harder. Do all the right things. Be a good person. Make the right decisions. And we work. And we work. And we're tired. Back to my story with the counselor. I said I'd get back to that. You thought I'd forgotten. The counselor said, are you willing to do the hard work? I spent 10 years, I mentioned, working, trying to do all of the right things. Resolving to do better and try harder. But I never quite shook this feeling. I never quite escaped this depression. 10 years, it's a long time. All of a sudden, one day, I had this epiphany. I had this revelation. I realized that I didn't have to strive to feel free. I simply needed to embrace my freedom. In John chapter 8, 32, 31 and 32, he says, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teaching. Verse 32, he says this, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I mentioned John 8, 36 a moment ago, where then right, so you'll know the truth and it'll set you free. And then he says this, so if the son has set you free, the son is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If the son sets you free, if the truth sets you free, then you are truly free. You're free indeed. Jesus told the truth. Jesus is the truth. And he tells us that we are truly free. You see, our freedom is accepted. It's not achieved. Our freedom in Jesus is simply accepted, not achieved. And some of you have been convinced by now that this is how God saves us. You're saying, yeah, 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 Garrett, I know, I got it. I've heard that. This is salvation. This is how God saves us. And yet we've long forgotten that that very thing that saves you is the thing that sustains you. In a more church background way of saying this, that very thing that saved you is the thing that sanctifies you. But for some reason, we've been conditioned to believe that we can accept Jesus. And that's the starting point. And from there, we got to do our part. And we got to do a bunch of work. And it becomes about what we can do for God as opposed to what God has already accomplished and done for us. He who the Son set free is free indeed. All we have to do is this simple yes, a soft and humble yes. I accept it. I receive it. And then, and then, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives me strength, who has broken my chains, 
who has set me free, who has beat the power of sin and death. Amen? Amen. Will you bow your heads and pray with me?